This one's found in Luke 18, but actually there's two this morning. There's one in Luke 18 and one in Luke 11. So we'll be uh, reading both. They're, they're, they're pretty brief. So you follow um, as I read first from Luke 18. I'll read the first eight verses of uh, that which is inspired, inerrant, infallible. It's the very mind of God as black words on a white page. You follow as I read them. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And then in Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 5. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Hey guys, before we start trying to figure out what these parables are all about, I want to I open with just three quick pieces of introduction, uh, what Steve Brown used to call side roads to the main road. I, I want to tell you three quick things. First of all, um, as you study the New Testament, you will find that on occasion, Jesus tells parables that are very similar, like you just saw in our text this morning, Luke 18 and Luke 11. Um, both of these parables are about prayer and, and really they pretty much make the same point about prayer. Um, they're, they're, they differ. Uh, one's about a friend and one's about a judge. One's about bread and one's about justice. Yes. But the, the overall point that he's making is pretty much the same. So what I've done uh, in the name of, and for the sake of series economy is that I've combined several of these, uh, of these parables that are similar. I'm doing that this morning, and I'll, I'll do it again next week, Lord willing. That's the first thing. The second thing that I, I just want to say by way of introduction is, I want you to notice in chapter 18, um, the, the parable in 18, it opens with verse one, in verse 1 by saying uh, to the effect that they ought always to pray. I, I want to draw your attention simply to the word ought. Guys, 
in the Christian life, there are oughts. <laughs> However I may want to understand the great beauty of grace, my understanding of grace cannot dispose of the fact that belonging to Jesus Christ involves some oughts, some obligations. Duty um, is not an ugly word among grace-loving Christians. In fact, you even see the word duty in the previous chapter, chapter 17, verse um, 10. Uh, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what, what is our duty, Jesus says. Paul uses the word obligation uh, on numerous occasions. He uses it two times in the same chapter of Scripture in, in Romans chapter 15. What I'm saying, guys, is simply this. As much as I love every particle of my Christian liberty, I, I, can, I am not free to shrink from the oughts, from the duties, from the obligations, all in the name of grace. Guys, we cannot allow grace and its beauty to be turned into mush. As free as I am, as a follower of Jesus Christ, there are parameters to my freedom. Now, here's the third thing, by, just by way of introduction. Guys, um, I, I want to say something <laughs> very candidly and, and get something really straight before we begin. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that I am a part of what I condemn this morning. Um, these two parables that we're going to look at, um, as I said, both are about prayer. And um, <laughs> they, um, they speak rather firmly to, to all of us, rather rather convictingly to all of us, including the loud fat guy in the pulpit. Guys, uh, you would be surprised. Um, it has been hard for me this week to pray, knowing that what I'm about to teach you this morning about your prayer, prayer life is not included in my own. So, my hope is that as we take a look at what Jesus Christ says to all of us about this subject of prayer, that we might all be helped. We might all be in, that our prayer lives might improve. Because what he says in here, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is, is not going to be easy um, on any of us concerning the whole subject of prayer. So, let's take a look at what he has to say. We're going to look at it under three headings. We're going to look at it, number one, under uh, what do these two stories have to tell us about true prayer? Um, what do these stories not tell us? And then what do these stories tell us about the gospel? Those, those are the three headings for this morning. So, what do these two stories have to tell us about true prayer? I want you to notice, first of all, folks, that neither of these parables is telling us to pray. 
They assume that we pray. They are telling us how to pray. Uh, you remember back in the, the, the little story in Luke 11, Luke 11 opens with the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, listen, could you teach us to pray? Um, they never asked him to teach them to witness or to preach, but they did ask him to teach them to pray. He then gives them the Lord's Prayer, and then you get this story about the, le- the, the friend who needs some bread and the guy that doesn't want to get up. Uh, and then you, you come to um, chapter 18, um, and unlike any other parable that I know of, Jesus gives you the intended lesson in the first verse before he gives you the story. But both of those stories are, are, are not trying to tell you to pray. They're trying to explain how to pray. And they make the point pretty clearly, I think. What Jesus is pleading for is a fervor. A, um, a constancy. A, a perseverance, a frequency, or, or in one good old King James English word, he's pleading for importunity. <laughs> now, we don't use that word anymore. But if you've got a King James Bible, that's what you'll find in Luke chapter 11, verse 8. He's saying, he's asking for us to play, pray with importunity. Well, um, the, the word comes from a Latin word, importunas, which uh, ha, it, what the Latin word means is troublesome. But guys, did you notice when I read from the English Standard Version how this version translated the word? It's a, it's a strange Greek word, but it translates it impudence. <laughs> um, so, all I'm saying is, these two stories are not about asking us to pray. They assume that we're praying. What they ask us, or what, they, what they're doing is telling us how to pray. And one of the key features of our prayer lives is to be this importunity business. Now, what is that? If I'm supposed to pray with importunity... What does that mean, for heaven's sakes? Let's, let's see if we can explain it. Let me, I want to read you just a couple of three or four sentences from Don Carson. Don Carson is a professor at, at um, Trinity Seminary. At least he was. He's one of my, he's, he's a good guy. And he wrote a book on prayer. And this is what he said. If some generations need to learn that God is not particularly impressed by long-winded prayers and is not more disposed to help us just because we are garrulous, our our generation needs to learn that God is not impressed by the kind of brevity that is nothing more than culpable negligence. He uh, He is not more disposed to help us because our insincerity and spiritual flightiness conspire to keep our prayers brief. Our generation certainly needs to learn something more about persistence in prayer, something that is close to what the Puritans meant when they exhorted one another to pray until you pray. Don't you love that? Pray until you pray. Now, guys, did did you get what Carson is saying? 
He's saying that there, is, that there are some generations that need to be told that God is not impressed with your long-winded prayers. Like, like Jesus' generation. You know, those guys would stand on the street corners and they would pray uh, with these long-winded things and they would repeat themselves. And, 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 and Carson is saying some generations need to be told that God is not impressed with that. But he said, if that's true about that generation, our generation's sin is different. He, he calls our sin Culpable negligence. Um, he said, God is, uh, uh, that we are in our flightiness, in our insincerity, in our spiritual flightiness, conspiring to keep our prayers brief. One generation has this problem with long-windedness. Our generation needs to learn something else. What we need to learn is what the Puritans used to say. We need to learn how to pray until we pray. You know what that means, ladies and gentlemen? What that means is that a lot that we call prayer isn't. Back in February of this year, Susie and I were in Barcelona, Spain. And we were, in, we were in Barcelona over the 14th of February. And you know what the 14th is. And uh, um, it's the night of romance. And, you know, I, we had three girls. And so Valentine's was really big in our home and still is with just me and Susie. And so it was our last night in Barcelona. And, and I wanted to do something kind of special for the last night. And it's Valentine's night. And, and so I found this thing. It was a dinner theater. And, and, and the tickets were pretty expensive for a skin flint like Big Jim here. Um, and so I, I bought the tickets and it was, um, we went to the, and it was flamenco dancing. Have you ever heard of that? You know what that is? It's a, it's a Spanish art form and it, it included supper, of course. And so we went and, and the, the meal was fun and, and the venue was kind of funky and, and, and really unique and it, it was neat and, and the dancing was, this flamenco dancing was fabulous and and the, the classical guitar, these guys that are playing the classical guitar were absolutely out of this world. But the one thing that was really bad was the singing. I mean, we've got 25 voices around here at Gracie Band that had better voices than these people did. But when they sang, you, you got the distinct impression that they were about to burst. It was like they were singing from someplace underneath their diaphragms. And they were... Gosh, that hurt. Uh, um, but I mean, they were, they were groaning as they sang. And when we left there, we just did a little bit of research. We found out that flamenco dancing, that art form was somewhat similar to what you saw going on in the cotton fields of the 19th century as slaves sang and, and picked cotton. They were laments. They were groans. What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that our prayer life needs to have a little flamenco dancing in it, or at least some singing. Guys, true prayer, 
according to these stories, is fervent. It, it has the power of importunity in it. You know, which is, the, which is the, one of the very first lessons that we learned as, as a child. You just cry long enough until you get your way. You know, gang, um, by the way, I should say, in no way am I saying that you can have anything that you want as long as you, as you let, ask fervently enough. You can pray until you're blue in the face. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you'll never come again. And you're not going to get that. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed so fervently that he sweat drops of blood. And the Father told him, no. There are all kinds of other factors that we should consider in this how-to of prayer. And we can't look at all of them in one sermon. But these two stories, they are simply exhorting us to some kind of importunity, to some kind of groan, to some kind of fervor. To some kind of flamenco dancing. You know, we talk about, I've been burdened to pray. Well, how long does a burden last? A week? A month? A year? I get the distinct impression from parables like these that you need to check in with me in about 15 years or 22 years or 35 years and maybe we can call that a burden. Guys, that's what we mean. That's what the Puritans meant when they said, pray. Until you pray. Let me tell you another lesson that's here. It is that prayer is hard. It's it's much harder to pray than it is to preach. Guys, there there are plenty of people who, who know how to pray, but don't. Because it's costly. You know, there are a couple of statements that are made in the New Testament. It, there are a parallel passage, and one of them is found in Luke 16. I want to, if you still got your Bibles open, flip over a page to Luke 16. I want, I want to read just one verse out of Luke 16. It's Luke 16, 16. And it says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And listen, and everyone forces his way into it. What does that mean? You know, I'm not really sure. But I can tell you this. It has something to do with holy violence. That is, there is an element of holy violence in following Jesus. And some of it, it seems to me, ought to show up in the way that we pray. Um, <laughs> you know what, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in a, I'm in a moment of turmoil here because I'm not going to finish this. I can just tell you that right now, but let me, let me move on. Um, maybe you've heard it also said that, um, to pray for the same thing twice reflects no faith. Well, not according to these stories. In fact, the very opposite is the very opposite is taught. 
But that really brings us what to what I think is the, the, the enormous takeaway of these two stories. It's a lesson that you can't miss, ladies and gentlemen. It's hugely important. Um, both of these stories have as a feature of their stories an outright denial or at least a delay in the response. Why is that? Well, because, ladies and gentlemen, um, that's the only way that you're ever going to grow anything called faith. That is, that the thing inside you called faith is ever going to grow. Because it's tested. It's challenged by the denial. By the delay. If you don't understand that, let me... Let me let me quote Augustine, and, and this statement, that I'm, this a sentence by Augustine, everybody quotes it. Augustine said this, God withholds his gifts for a time that you and I may learn to desire great things greatly. He withholds these things from us for a time. So that you and I can learn to desire great things greatly. Gang, have you ever, have you ever lost your assurance? Your assurance of your own personal self? Have you ever lost it? I have. And I bet you several of you have too. But do you remember what happened when you got it back? How you desired great things. Greatly. How things that, that weren't all that valuable to you before, like worship. Like the Bible. Guys, in this life that you and I called faith, we give up so quickly. It, it's, it's like we... We ring the doorbell and then run before anybody answers. No growing faith there, ladies and gentlemen. No stretching of the soul there, ladies and gentlemen. Now, guys, if you've ever wondered why Luke 18, excuse me, yeah, the parable in Luke 18 concludes with a question in verse 8. Here it is. The question is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you understand it now? Do you get it? You see, Carson called it our spiritual flightiness. There's nothing muscular about the faith of God's people in the 21st century. There's nothing impudent. There's no holy violence to it. To the point that 
God says, gosh, is anybody going to last? When I come again, will faith be there? Ladies and gentlemen, one of the great lessons of these two parables is the necessity, the healthiness of delay. And if not delay, denial. So that we can step back and say, I still believe in this God. Though everything that I prayed for He said no to. Like he did to his son. Ladies and gentlemen, the issue here is not whether God answers prayer. The issue is whether or not you and I are going to pray long enough for faith to grow. issue is if we're ever going to pray until we pray. (laughs) This doesn't happen to me very often. It's 1025 and I just finished point one. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to skip point two. That is what the parable doesn't teach us. Because I do want to tell you what these two stories tell us about the gospel. It tells us three things. It's very honest about where we live. It's very honest about who we are. And it's very honest about what God has done. First of all, It's very honest. These two stories are very honest about where we live. What what could be worse than a rotten judge? We all long for justice. But this guy in Luke 18, he dispenses the very opposite. The, The inevitable result is at best fury and at worst anarchy, like you're seeing in Egypt right now. This man was not religious. And he was no humanitarian. He says so himself in verse 4. And in that description, ladies and gentlemen, what you get is a picture of human nature apart from Jesus Christ. You get a picture of what men are like who have not been born of the Spirit. You You get a picture of what people are like if the Spirit does not restrain them. In the other story in Luke 11, that other stingy guy... He's concerned only for his own comfort. Um, He only answers not because he cares or he has any kindness for the person who's asking, but because he wants his own comfort. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's where we live, ladies and gentlemen, in a world that's full of that. Self-serving, injustice. I'm not a God-fearer or humanitarian, and I'm stingy. 
That, that's human nature apart from Christ. It's also honest about who we are. Because in this, this parable in Luke 18, God's people resemble the widow. Um, guys, widows in this culture were some of the most vulnerable people in all of the culture. You know, I read someplace, and I, uh, somebody will have to check me out here, but uh, I, I, I read this someplace that in India, and, and surely they don't do this anymore, but in India, that if, if your husband preceded you in death, that you as the wife had to climb onto the funeral pyre and be burned alive along with your already dead husband. Hmm. Well, surely they don't do that anymore. But, but you get at least a little sense about the vulnerability of widows in this culture, guys. She has no, no husband. There is, there's no one to provide for her. She's, she has been now deprived of her natural protector and her provider. Um, she has now got limited resources. Uh, she is weak. She's lonely. She's uh, poor. Um, she lives apart from her husband in the midst of some hostile men. And she has an adversary. That's who we are. You know, I think if we knew those things, we'd pray probably more fervently. But, but here's what the gospel tells us. It tells us that this God he acts not for his comfort but for mine. That for a group of defenseless helpless deprived vulnerable broken people who have an adversary, that Jesus Christ came. He came to rescue those folks by leaving his eternal comfort and putting himself in the horrible discomfort of a cross. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the only just judge ever, is the one who has found a way to save broken people like us at the price of some extreme discomfort, unlike this guy. For himself. And we widows, we often are satisfied simply to have a lover when Jesus Christ offers himself as a husband. The gospel is, ladies and gentlemen, 
that for the most vulnerable, the most deprived, the most broken, marginalized people who have an adversary, Jesus Christ, through immense discomfort, has done what was necessary to meet my every need. I don't need a lover. I need a husband. And Jesus Christ is that husband. Are you married to him? Our Father, I pray that you will remind us through these parables that exhort us to pray that you are a just judge and that you are a sympathetic friend. That you are the one who left your, through Christ, left your comfort and experienced discomfort, to say the least. So that we who were vulnerable might be, might have a refuge into which we might run and be safe. So, Father, um, if you've brought people here this morning who have not yet met this beautiful Savior of ours, the one who has paid every smidgen of the debt that we owed, would you, um, would you open their eyes to see how vulnerable they are and then point them to the beauty of our Savior? Do that, O oh God. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray.